Aren't you thankful for Calvary? Praise the Lord. Well, the story this morning in Mark chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Mark chapter 6, we'll be, begin reading in verse 14. We're looking at the passage. Tim's already read it for us. This passage kind of gives new meaning to roast preacher. You've heard about that before, right? I go home and have roast with my family, and some people leave church and go home and have roast preacher, right? They talk about the preacher, talk about the preaching, and just about anything in between. And yet, this story is not just for preachers. It's for you and for me as, as followers of Christ. The Bible tells us that anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. Is that what it says? Will suffer persecution. And even though the Bible affirms that over and over, I mean, not just one passage. I mean, it's all through the New Testament. Even though the Bible affirms that over and over, it surprises us sometimes whenever it happens, doesn't it? We should expect rejection and hatred and even harm from the world as believers, but it surprises us whenever that that happens. Sometimes we're almost offended that the world or unbelievers would treat us like that. Don't they know that we have good intentions? Don't they understand that, that we... We just, we just want to do good for them? And the answer to that is no, they don't know that. In fact, what you're doing in their minds is violence to them. It's violence to their soul. It's not a, it's not a pleasant thing for a sinner to hear that they're not right, but they're wrong. That they're not headed for heaven, but they're headed for hell. That they're not good, they're actually evil. And even the most base attempts that they have to do right is tainted by by the wrong motives in their hearts. Jesus in John fifteen eighteen said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You don't have the corner on the market on rejection. Jesus was was the first one, God the Father, obviously before that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And listen to verse 20 of John 15. Remember the word that I said to you. Remember these words, Jesus says. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, Lord makes it very clear that the relationship with others, others in this world, will be based on a person's relationship with God. There are only two, two groups of people in the world. There, there are those who are following Christ, and there are those who are not. There are God's people and those who are not. There are the, the kingdom of, of, uh, of heaven, the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of, of Satan. You're either of God your father or of your father the devil and Jesus makes it clear that the vertical relationship that human beings have directs the horizontal relationship. You follow me? Or to put it in the words of the law, we love others horizontally. Why? Because we're just good loving people? No, because we love God. The love that we have for others flows out of our love for God. And we love God because He first loved us. It is the, it's the mercy of God, the kindness of God that leads us to, to repentance. And 1 John chapter 4 
says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. It's pretty strong words. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I mean, over and over and over, all through the New Testament, how we treat others is an indication of our relationship with, with, with God. We want to blame others for the, our, our own reactions, but it's actually a very good indication. How we treat others is a very good indication of our relationship to, to God. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples this lesson to prepare them for future ministry. You remember he gives the parables of the soils and, and he teaches them about how the gospel is going to expand and, and how, how evangelism is going to be done because they're scratching their head. The Messiah has come. We've embraced him and it's just us 12 and a few others. And all of Galilee and all of Israel is rejecting Jesus. Why is this happening? And he gives them the, the parables of the, uh, of the soils. He specifically takes them to Nazareth to watch as he is rejected himself. Then the last passage that we saw, Jesus now as a turning point in ministry, he sends the, the, the disciples out, 12 of them. He sends them out in six teams on a short-term mission trip. And he sends them out to preach and experience this truth. They're going to be received. The words of Jesus will be received. And those who receive the words of Jesus, those homes will take care of them. And they're to remain in those homes. Those Will be uh, there will be others that will reject them, and they're to testify to judgment in those towns. And they don't reject the disciples; they reject the the word. Steve Lawson said, "A preacher that tells the truth better be ready to duck or pucker at any moment when he walks in the room." I like that. It's true. You preach the truth. You tell someone the truth. They're either going to hug your neck and thank you because they've received the words of Christ, or you're you're, you're going to find hatred and anger. And now Jesus is going to introduce the story of John the Baptist who is murdered for his message. And this story is short, a sandwich between this short-term mission trip. So in verse 7 of Mark chapter 6, he calls the twelve to himself and begins to send them out. And we saw last week he gives this model for sending, which ministers are sent. There's a model that they go. They go under authority, and their ministry is proclaiming the word, which is confirmed by the by the works. And then the disciples come back in verse 30. You look at verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things of what they had done and what they had taught. There's the return report. And sandwiched in between that is this story of John the Baptist in the middle. And God doesn't just arbitrarily put something in, in the Bible. There's a purpose here. And it connects to the disciples. And it connects to them sending out. And in the story of John the Baptist, Jesus gives and John gives and Mark gives an illustration of what can happen to the disciples, but what will happen to the Lord Jesus in the future. You know, there's actually two passion accounts in the Gospel of Mark. Here's one of them. It's the lesser, the greater is coming, and that's the passion of, of Christ. John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. And he's the forerunner for Jesus even in death. And he was a faithful preacher. And a faithful preacher speaks the words of God to the ears of men. And when you do that, you make faithful friends and fierce enemies. And both of those are based upon the reception of Jesus. And the disciples needed to understand that. And you need to understand that. 
Jesus wants his disciples to understand that they're not just going to get uh, hospitality is, is, is going to be rejected. That's not the only thing that's going to happen to them. No, you can't stay in my house because I reject your words. It's going to get worse, and it could cost them their very, their very lives. And there's an ultimate rejection coming in the, in the, in the future. And it's, this, is, this is a point in Jesus' ministry where it's getting serious. It's about a year and a half in. The rejection at Nazareth is, is, is serious, but now John is murdered. It's a turning point that says intensity's building and something worse is coming. And we know what that, that is. It's, it's, the, it's the death of, of Christ. And there are many similarities between John's death and Jesus' death. Both of them die because they, they share the message of God. Both are condemned by reluctant political leaders. Both Herod and Pilate say John and Jesus are innocent men. Both of those political leaders execute the prophet John and the Lord Jesus in, for, to gain favor with others. You remember, Pilate says, you want Barabbas or Jesus? And Herod doesn't want to kill John, but does so to gain the favor of, of his perverted wife. And in both cases, the Jews stand by and give, and give approval. One of the most condemning statements that Jesus ever made about the Jewish people was this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, behold, your house is left to you desolate. One commentator said that is the most amazing, astounding, shocking indictment ever to be rendered on a people in human history. You, the chosen people, have systematically and consistently through your entire history refused to obey the revelation of God and you have killed the messengers who brought that revelation. And now he's going to point out that they're going to keep doing that and they'll do that to the apostles and the prophets and to those who come after, preach the gospel, and to you even to this day. Well, let me show you the outline, and then we'll, we'll get into the message. It's the demise of John the Baptist. And the first part is the report of Jesus in verses 14 through 16. The fame of Jesus is, 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 is heard about through the, the ministry of the, of, the, of the apostles, the disciples, and then the fear of Herod comes in, and then there's the story about the death of John in verses 17 through 29, and you get to see the folly of, of sin. That's the, that's the outline. That's how the passage breaks down. And the story's about John, but I want to zoom in on Herod this morning. Because Herod illustrates for us the stages that a person goes through when they, when they plug their ears, they descend away from God and, and choose sin in, instead of, of faith. And he gives us four stages on the path to rejecting God. There is a defiled conscience that we're going to see in Herod. He thinks that the apostles, their message and what's happening is John the Baptist rising from the dead. There's a deferring conviction. John has a testimony to Herod. Herod thinks one thing about John, but Herod's wife thinks another, and Herod defers to her. There is a derelict commitment in this really weird story about this young girl dancing before all of these, these men, and he makes a promise. And then there's a depraved conclusion. John the Baptist's head 
is asked for and delivered on a platter. See, when you, when you defile your conscience and you defer your convictions, it leads you to make derelict commitments and depraved conclusions. And that's exactly what you see Herod doing all through this story as he brings about the murder of John the Baptist. Let's look at the first one here, this defiled conscience of, of Herod in verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. It says, Now Herod heard of him, that's Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore the powers are at work in him. It says King Herod heard of his name. He'd become well known. Jesus sends out the, the six groups to, to preach his word and confirm them by his works, and then his missions activity stirs up attention, and Herod hears about it. And there's more than one Herod in the Bible. And this is not Herod the Great. This is King Herod. King Herod is, is the one found here. Herod the Great is the one that, that killed all of the, the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That was, that was this Herod's father. Luke calls him Herod the Tetrarch, or Tetrarch. It means the uh, one of four rulers. And, and this Herod has uh, a fourth of the, of, of the area of Palestine. He is the ruler over Galilee and Perea, and that's why he's getting reports about Jesus. Jesus sends out the disciples in Galilee, and all uh, miracles are happening. People are believing, and this report gets back to Herod, who is the ruler. And he's concerned about it. But I want you to notice why he's concerned about it. He's concerned about it because of his conscience. His conscience was, was greatly bothered. And we read the passage. Who's the one that puts John the Baptist into prison? It's this Herod. And he also knows that he shouldn't have put John in prison because he tells him he's a, he's a just and holy man. And by the time you get to this passage in Mark 6, John the Baptist is already in prison. He's been there for about a year. And so the disciples are going out there preaching and people are say, giving three explanations for what's happening on these six mission teams that are going out. First of all, they're saying, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. The second testimony they're giving, well, this must be Elijah and Elijah is going to come and proclaim the day of the Lord. And finally, the last one is he, he's just a prophet. He's a prophet of old crying out. But I want you to look at verse 16, because look at what Herod says. We get a, we can't get an x-ray of his conscience of what's going on. So they're saying it's John the Baptist, it's Elijah, it's a prophet in verse 16. But when Herod heard, Mark zooms in here on what Herod's thinking. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in the prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. When Herod hears that someone's preaching God's message and calling people to repentance and had divine power to back it up, he immediately assumes that it is John. Why do you think he did that? Because he knew he'd done wrong. His conscience condemned him. His immediate reaction is, it's John the Baptist, he's come back from the dead, and he's come back from the dead to, to, to kill me. He's, he's full of fear. And a defiled conscience that knows it's done wrong is full of fear. 
You know, you can run from a preacher. You can run from somebody at work that's witnessing to you. You can, you can put out of your mind the, the words of, of the Lord. But you'll lay down at night and you'll put your pillow, you put your head on your pillow, and the one thing that you can't escape is your conscience. It's there, isn't it? And when you've done something wrong, there's irrational fears. And your conscience is that part of you that either excuses you or accuses you before God. It's not infallible. It's not the Holy Spirit. It can be rightly instructed and wrongly instructed. But however it's instructed, it's going to go off. And you, and you, you, you can't get away from it unless you sear it completely. I mean, this morning... You know deep down inside whether you're right with God, whether anybody else knows. I mean, you look pretty, you have makeup on, you have a tie, you have a T-shirt, whatever it is, and you put on a, a smiling face on the outside, but deep down you know in your heart whether you're right with God or not. Your conscience follows you everywhere. It can't be suppressed. You know if you've, made, if you've wronged someone and you haven't made it right. You, you know if you've, you have hidden sin going on in your life. You, 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 you sense that. And the place that you sense that is, is in your conscience. And Herod is miles and miles away from the disciples. And it's the disciples preaching the words of Jesus, not even Jesus himself. And John's already dead. And when Herod hears that, it must be John. He must be coming back from the dead to get me. You've heard the, the, the illustration of the story about the, the preacher that the evangelist comes to preach a, revi- a set of revival meetings, and and uh, the evangelist is uh, approaches things completely different. He's all studied up, he's prayed up, and and so he likes to play golf a little bit uh, in in the mornings to kind of unwind to prepare him for the revival e- evenings that night. And the preacher uh, says, uh, uh, in his mind, I mean, this is revival, and we need to to go out and, and door knock, and and we need to pray, and and we need to get our hearts right in a different ways. But but he he. He acquiesces to the evangelist, and, and he goes out and, and, and plays golf. And in the, middle of the, in the middle of the golf game, you hear four, and all of a sudden the, the preacher gets smacked in the, in the side of the head with the golf ball and immediately throws his club down on the ground and says, I knew it, I knew it. He had a defiled conscience before he ever went out there. And the conscience is the one thing that makes you different from animals. It is part of the image of God that where you can, you're different, you can discern good and evil. And when it's defiled, there's nothing worse. A clear conscience brings great boldness, but a defiled one will make you afraid, even when there's no reason to be. You know Proverbs 28.1? The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. David describes what it's like when his conscience was condemned in Psalm 32, if you want to go back and read that. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Not just during the day, but at night, I felt it was like vitality draining out of me. It was like, it was like the, the uh, fever heat of summer. He describes the, the, the condemned conscience like being out in a desert land with 115 degrees with no water to drink. And God's hand just pressing on him and pressing on him. And David describes that inescapable pressing of God's finger on the conscience when he refuses to confess his sin. 
And then the relief that comes, like a dam bursting when he did. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You've been there, right? I mean, you know what it's like to not be right with God as an unbeliever and experience the joy of salvation. Like the old country fellow that got saved and the preacher stuck the microphone in his face and said, how do you feel? He said, I've washed with all kinds of soap before, but I ain't never felt this clean. It's true. You also felt what it what that feels like being a believer. When your conscience is defiled and you know you're not right with God and you refuse to confess and refuse to do anything, it creates fear and anxiety. And yet when we bring our sin to the Lord, we can have our consciences cleared. In fact, Hebrews 10.22 says the atonement provides cleansing of our conscience from dead works so we can serve the living God. Herod is afraid. And as he refuses to do anything, he slips deeper into sin. There's a deferring conviction. When the conscience is defiled, you end up deferring your convictions to others. You'll let others. You'll go along with the crowd. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John told Herod and Herodias very clearly that what they were doing was sin. And John and Herod knew that. So his conscience was defiled. And Herodias also knew that. And she responded in a very different way. So what's, what's happened here? Well, the Bible tells us that John was baptizing in, in Salim in the, uh, uh, toward the Jordan River. And Herod must have sent someone there in the middle of John's ministry, and he's arrested. And Mark tells us why. He's arrested because Herod's illegitimate wife is offended by the truth. And she says, you've got the power, go arrest this guy. Silence him. Because John was confronting her sin. Now, I don't know a good analogy here. I mean, maybe 1 Corinthians 7. I mean, the relationships in this passage is like a bad romance novel. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is crazy. Now, I want you to notice that Herodias is not called Herod's wife in the Bible. For Herod himself had laid John into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You remember when Jesus comes along with a woman at the well? He says, who's your husband? She said, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. God says that Herodias is his brother Philip's wife. Herodias is his brother Philip's wife. She's actually the daughter of another son of Herod the Great. And so she's married. She was a daughter of one of his half-brothers and married to a son. So she's married to her uncle. I won't make a West Virginia joke right now, okay? She's married to her uncle, her father's half-brother. And Philip is then in this incestuous relationship with her. And Herod the Tetrarch comes along and meets her and she seduces him. And then they both plan on divorcing their current spouses and getting together and marrying each other. And that's what they do. And John the Baptist says that's wrong. That's wrong, isn't it? And you say, how can somebody do something so messed up and convoluted? How can you call a man a woman and a woman man? 
How can you say that two men are legally married before God's eyes? Sin is dysfunctional. It's illogical. It's messed up. And when you will not do anything about the, the conviction in your conscience, you'll end up letting your moral compass go crazy. And that's what's happening in the world today, and that's what's happening right here in the Bible. And people don't like it when you tell them the truth. Call someone who claims to be transgender by their biological gender and watch what happens. Call a he a he when a he wants to be a she. I mean, it's so messed up that I can't even describe it to you. But you know what I'm talking about. And you tell them the truth. And people don't want to give up their sin. And Herodias doesn't want to give up her sin. Do you know how many enemies I have because of my actions? I can say before the Lord, before you right now, none that I'm aware of. Um, now, maybe after the sermon, there'll be a line up here, but uh, none that I'm aware of. I've reconciled with everyone that I know that I've wronged. I've wronged many, many people in my life to my shame. And I'd do anything to go back and undo it. But I can't do that. But what I can do is reconcile with people. The last guy that I knew that I was an enemy was a man or a young guy that I got in a fist fight with at high school. And I was asking the Lord to reveal to me if there was anybody that had any offense against me because I wanted to go make it right. And the Lord brought that man to my mind. I, I, and I looked him up. It took me a month to find him. I called him on the phone. He didn't answer. I looked up. I mean, this is before Google and everything else. But I found him, went to his house. He's got a big dog in the yard. And uh, beware of dog sign. I finally find the guy. He knocked on his door. He's not there. I call him on the telephone, and and I'm I'm, I'm nervous. I you know you may not remember me. We got in a fight, and I've come to Christ, and I, I want I want to seek your forgiveness. I was an unbeliever then, and and the guy on the other end of the line just 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 with joy in his heart, and he said, "Praise God, I've become a Christian too." And we had a big talk about about all of that. But I want to tell you, I bet I have plenty of enemies of people that I told the truth to that didn't want to hear it. I run into people in the grocery store all the time that I told the truth to that didn't want to hear it. And John said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the reaction from Herodias in verse 19, look at that, she held it against him and wanted to kill him. And yet, Herod feared John, in verse 20, knowing he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Herodias held a grudge because John told her the truth. Herod feared because John told her the truth, because he knew he was a righteous man. And people respond differently. But who won the day? Because Herod wouldn't do anything about the fear in his heart and the convicting in his conscience. He defers to his wife. And so John is in prison. Rejecting the warning of your conscience will lead you to compromise what you know to be true. Your conscience defiled will lead you to defer convictions. And then it ultimately will bring about derelict commitments. Look at verse 21. And don't miss how this starts. Then an opportune day came. Then 
an opportune time. Then a strategic day arrived. If you don't hear anything, hear this. Sin usually is never planned. It overtakes you. But lots of ground has been lost up until the opportune time or the day in which the tiger lurches from the weeds. J.C. Ryle said, first sin startles a man, then it becomes pleasing, then easy, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed. Then the man is impenitent, then obstinate, then he resolves never to repent, and then he's damned. What a scary, scary picture. And ignoring the voice of God that comes through the Word leads to the downward spiral of, of, of sin. Here, Herod throws a party. At an opportune time, the trap is sprung. And he brings in all of the, the highfalutin muckety-mucks of the day, the military commanders, the lords, there's the political elite, and the leading men of Galilee, this local power structure in verse 21. And this is a men's event. It's about as worse, it's about as bad as it, it, it can possibly get. Gluttony, uh, debauchery, drunkenness at its lowest level. During this banquet, Herodias' daughter comes in and dances for the group. Verse 22. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and danced and pleased Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. It's pretty disgusting, that passage is, because, because it implies the dance was seductive. And the word that's used there for the daughter is a 12 to 15 year old. And Herod has no concern about the, the morality or, or the chastity of his stepdaughter. He allows her to parade himself before the lust of others. And in this dance, she pleases Herod and, and the others, and he makes this derelict commitment. He's so overtaken by what he saw, by the, his lustful heart. He wants what he wants. He promises up to half of his kingdom. Starts with a conscience, then the loss of convictions, and now lust conceives, and it brings forth this sinful commitment. But it's a derelict commitment. He promises something that he can't fulfill. Herod is a servant of Rome. He doesn't have a kingdom. Everything Herod owns is Caesar's. In fact, he loses all this in 39 A.D. when he asks to be called king. But he's so overtaken by his sin, he makes a rash decision, and he makes a promise. There's somebody else in the Bible that did that. His name was Esau, wasn't it? You get to this point, you don't think anymore, you don't make good decisions, it becomes instinctual, base level, and the instinct you act on is not good or godly. And Herod acts on his own lust and makes a commitment that he cannot keep. And then that commitment that he makes leads him into deeper sin. Finally, there's this depraved conclusion. In verse 25, well, in verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she comes back into Herod in verse 25 with haste and says to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a, on a platter. You can see in Herodias, whenever you don't deal with 
with conviction that hatred turns to murder, literally, in this one. Isn't that what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount? She gets the commitment. She goes to her mother, asks for the... She comes back and asks for the head of John. And Herod knows that he's messed up, but he can't get out of it. Look at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He did not want to refuse her. This was an oath. And he's going to lose face. And he's made it in front of witnesses. And these witnesses are the power brokers in his kingdom. And he acquiesced to all of that because of the dinner guests. He's unwilling to refuse her. And so immediately the king sends an executioner and commands that his head be brought back in verse 27. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. How disgusting. And yet her mother rejoiced over it like a prize. Lust and pride to save face in a decision that he didn't like and he didn't want to do. He goes through with it and sin leads the day. Do you see this descent that's there? Starts in the conscience and then loss of convictions. And then after that you end up making decisions and commitments that you should have never made that you can't even back up. Oh God, I'll never do it again. If you just get me home tonight, I'll never do it again. Oh, God, if you just get me out of, of this one time, if, if you make sure that, that my, my Internet history is not seen, I'll, I'll never do it again. And, and we make commitments that we can't keep, that we're trying to do in our own strength. And then here, even in the end, when there's another opportunity, what should Herod have done? I blew it. John's a, John's a righteous man. I can't kill, this, can't kill this man. I should have listened to him before, but his lust... Gives way to pride and the desire to save face. You know why we sin? We sin because we believe the promise of sin is greater than the promise of God. We, it's unbelief. We believe that whatever sin promises us is greater than what God promises us, so we choose sin. And the reason that we won't repent is we fear men and our desires more than, than God. The destructive and degrading nature of sin is massive. One sin will lead you to another sin, which will lead you to another sin, which will lead you to yet more and more. And before you know it, you find yourself swimming in a sea of sin, going wherever the current chooses to take you, and all without mercy. Look at verse 29. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his body, and laid it in a tomb. The very last scene in this horrible picture of the death of a prophet and, and the sin of Herod and, and all of this, this nastiness is an echo of another death that is to come, isn't it? When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away John's body, his corp, and he, and he, he laid it in a tomb and and when Jesus' disciples heard of his death, they came, they took it away, and they laid it in a tomb. But the story doesn't end there, does it? It's not there. If you go to John's tomb, you'd have found him. When you go to Christ's tomb, he's not there. Because he's alive, he's risen. 
from the dead. When you defile your conscience, you'll defer your convictions, and that will lead you to make derelict commitments and end you in depraved conclusions. Not a pretty picture, is it?